following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Hey, good morning, church. Good to be with y'all. I've been off for a couple weeks. Thank you for that time. Uh, My family and I feel very well rested, and uh, it's good to be back. I missed a tornado. So that's wild. I mean, come on. That's an interesting thing to miss, but uh, I'm glad you all survived. So did I. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to Matthew chapter 18? Matthew 18 is where we are spending our time together. That text that was just read over us is from Matthew 18. Uh, if, you don't have a hardback, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of these hardback black Bibles under your chairs. Matthew 18 is on page 823. If you don't uh, have a, a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that as a gift. Uh, you can open a phone or a tablet. If you're online, there's a little Bible tab. We're glad you're with us. But Matthew 18, you're going to need to see this. We're going to pick this one apart. Uh, we're right in the middle of our summer series in the Gospel of Matthew. Every every spring, we do Old Testament. Every fall, we do New Testament. And every summer, we work our way through the Gospels because we never want to get too far away from the teachings of Jesus. And so we're, we're in Matthew chapter 18 this summer. And for the last, last, literally the last four weeks, I think we've been in this chapter, in this specific chapter. Uh, at the beginning of Matthew 18, uh, the, the theme of greatness came up. The theme of greatness came up. Uh, the disciples are asking, who, who's the greatest? Right? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And the answer that Jesus gave was actually to illustrate. He gave an illustration and he brought a child in front of the disciples. And he said, hey, if you want to be great, you got to become like this little guy. You got to become like a child. You need to become dependent and humble and growing. You need to, you need to be childlike if you want to be great in my kingdom. That's the type of disciples that Jesus is after, childlike disciples. Greatness is actually opposite in God's kingdom than it is in our world. Our world measures greatness in success and in accolades, in power and in strength. But, but in the kingdom of God, greatness is measured in meekness and humility, in care and compassion. And so we saw that. And then Jesus moves from the illustration of a child to the idea of little ones. He shifts, he takes the illustration, and he applies it uh, to this idea called little ones. And I just want you to know, children and little ones are not synonymous in the Bible. Sometimes we misinterpret this. Little ones are actually Christians, Christians who have a humble, childlike faith. So when you read little ones, don't think children, think Christians. That's, th- those words could be used interchangeably, a Christian and a little one. And then last week, the text moved to little ones, like Christians who wander, little ones who wander. And Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Okay, you remember this? Uh, if you missed last week's sermon, Eric, uh, Eric preached, one of our, uh, uh, our, our financial guy, and he did a great job. You need to go listen to that. But one of the sheep, one of the hundred sheep that the shepherd has goes astray, and the shepherd leaves the 99 on the mountain to go search out that one sheep who goes astray. And, and remember, this is what Eric said. He said, this, this one sheep that goes astray, it's a Christian, it's a, it's a little one. This one sheep that, that wanders is a Christian. It's not somebody who's lost. It's somebody who's in the flock already. Okay, so the lost sheep, the one who has gone astray, the wandering one that Jesus tells that parable about is in fact somebody who already believes in God. And the theme from last week was the wanderer. Right, the wanderer. There's Christians who, who wander. And that theme is all through the New Testament. That as Christians, we sometimes wander. Now, I, I, I talk about this often because I think it's a misconstrued idea in Christian circles, especially evangelical circles. But, but the Christian life is about progression, not perfection. It's about progress. It's about the means. It's about the journey more than it is about the perfection that sometimes we think, like we got to get it all figured out before we got this thing nailed. And the entire counsel of the New Testament is that, that you and I are not who we should, should be. That you and I, we're not where we should be. 
that you and I, we're not, we're not done. We're not there yet. We haven't gotten, we haven't, we haven't arrived. And, and, and the man or woman who is submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord is a work in progress. Progress is the goal, not perfection, progression, becoming who God means you to be. It's progress, not perfection. And now hear me, I love that message. I listened to Eric's message this past week while I was running, and I thought, I love this message because it means that God never stops working on me. If there's perfection available, then I'll get to the point where he doesn't need to work on me anymore. And I love the fact that he's not done working. I love the fact that I never arrive because that explains to me why I'm not there yet. It does. Because listen, y'all, I've been following Jesus for 22 years now, and I feel like I'm stunted a bit in my growth at times. Like this, this following Jesus thing is slow. Does anybody else feel this? That it's slower? Like you, I thought that I'd be further along than I am now when I first started on this journey with Jesus. Like this thing is slower than I thought. Anybody else feel this? Doesn't growth with Jesus feel like it's slow? I feel like I'm a slow developer with Jesus. That's how I feel. And this text offers an answer that we are prone to wander. That we are wanderers, that Christians at some point in some way, all Christians wander. So just by a show of hands real quick, this is fun. Okay. Let's pretend like we're not Baptists and show our hands. Okay. <laughs> it, by a show of hands, by a show of hands, how many of you have been following Jesus for more than 20 years? Just real quick, more than 20 years. Come on, you're safe here. Okay, a good amount of you are here and you have been there for more than 20 years. That's me, 22 years in this game. So, uh, and, and now with the same sort of people, okay, by a show of hands, how many of you continue to wander at times? Okay, look around real quick. If you're newer, if your hand isn't up, look around. Nobody else's hand went down, okay? We all wander, no one who's been at this thing for more than a minute drops their hands when asked, Do you still, are, are you still prone to wander? Do you still drift at times? And now hear me, it's taken me a couple of decades into this thing to realize this, but, but wandering is actually the norm, not the exception. There will be seasons like this. this is, gosh, isn't this why we sing our favorite hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like, here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it. That's why we sing that, because it's a universal truth. So you, uh, the reason why I bring all this up is there's a logical progression in Matthew's gospel in chapter 18 that we're working with here. It sets us up for what we have today. You've got greatness. Greatness is not found in the way that the world defines it. It's actually humble, progressive reliance on Jesus, childlike faith. But then even Christians who do that, even little ones who depend wholly on Christ are prone to wander. And the good news from last week, the good shepherd will leave the 99 and go and hunt down that one sheep to bring them back. It's the good news of the gospel. Today, though, the question that we move to is what is our role in the life of a wandering sheep? God's going to go after the sheep. God's going to leave the 99 and go take it on. But what's, what's our role? What's the church's role? What is the role of other Christians as God's going to keep chasing and God's going to keep searching and God's going to keep pursuing? What's, what's our job? What's our responsibility with wanderers? So if last week was all about the wanderer, this week uh, I'm calling the sermon the restorer. The restorer. Because Matthew gives us a way. That text that was just read over us, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20, gives us a way to carefully and compassionately and mercifully woo and restore wanderers. Whether the wandering is something inadvertent, right? Like, like you stumble into something, you accidentally kind of get off course. It's not super in, uh, advertent. Uh, but, uh, but even if that wanderer is knowingly and willingly backsliding in their faith, the Bible, the text today addresses our role as the restorer. So that's what we're going to talk about. That was all introduction. You're welcome. Okay. Matthew chapter 18. Let's get to the text. Let's start in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. 
if your brother sins against you. Now, we have to stop right there. Six words in. Okay, six words in, we need to stop and do some work. First thing to notice, first thing to notice, it says that this is a brother. That could be brother or brother and sister. It doesn't matter. You can translate it either way. Uh, but, but this is a brother. This is actually why we're talking about this in connection to last week's parable of the lost sheep, because this person is a sheep. They're a brother. They're a Christian and they're your brother. They're your brother. So this is different than somebody who sins against you who isn't your brother. This is a different case, okay? Uh, so, so if someone sins against you who is not a Christian brother of yours, then you are not primarily trying to restore them. Because you're not, what, what are you restoring them to? You're not trying to restore them. You're trying actually to convince them of the gospel, Your primary method is not trying to restore them to something. You're trying to actually evangelize them. That's a question of evangelism. What we're talking about in the text here is a question of discipleship. It's a question of discipleship. And I don't know how we've gotten convoluted in our minds in the modern church where we expect non-Christians to act like Christians. I don't know why we've gotten there, right? It's like we're shocked when non-believers act like they don't believe. Oh, really? I'm, surp- I'm, I'm, I'm never shocked by my neighbors when they do things that pagans do. You know why? Because they're pagans. <laughs> don't tell them that. They don't watch. All right, so like, okay, this is a brother. This is a brother. Second, brother connotes family. Brother connotes family. That's relational language. And it says, it's your brother. It's not just, ah, brother, it's your brother. That means that you're in relationship with this person. Okay, this isn't somebody that you don't know on the internet. Okay, this isn't a person that you've heard of. This isn't even really an acquaintance of yours. This is a brother. This is a sister. This kind of restoration that we're going to look at is predicated on you being meaningfully connected with other brothers and sisters in a local church environment. This is your brother. You love this person. You love this person. It's family. But the text says they sin against you. Do you know sometimes brothers will sin against you? That wound actually hurts different than somebody you don't know sinning against you. But they sin against you. So, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. All right, stop. Right there. This is step one for the restorer. I know I don't like big, like steps, like three steps to a better marriage, but when Jesus gives us steps, we can take them, okay? This is step one. You go to the Christian who sins against you in private. Step one for the restorer is to go, not text, right? Not, 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 not FaceTime, You go to them in private. It's between you and them alone. Now, listen to me. This will revolutionize your relationships, whether you are a Christian or not. If you practice step one, it would revolutionize your relationships. Here's the principle. You go and talk to someone, not about someone. If you did that things would drastically change in your relationships at work and in your family, at home, on your block with people who you love and people who you don't love. If you went and talked to them rather than about them, it would change the landscape of how you do relationships. I just guarantee it. The world would be better if we just followed that one step. Go to them in private. Go to them in private. But gosh, we do all kinds of goofy things. Christians, we're the worst at this, y'all because we can cloak it in some spiritual language. I've got a prayer request about Tina, right? Like, oh gosh, right? Like, that's a, but that's what we do. 
And what we do is we cloak it with spiritual language. But hear me, you don't gossip about the brother or sister who has sinned against you. You don't post about it. You don't tweet about it or thread it or I don't know, whatever that thing is, okay? You don't share it as a prayer request. Well, you got to pray for Tina because you know she's really hurting right now. Like, no, you don't do that. You don't talk about it with other people. You go in private. You go in private. And here, here, uh, yeah, sometimes Christians will share it as a prayer request. Real quick, real quick, Christians here. Okay, Christians here. We need to be really careful how much wise counsel we gather concerning a situation like this. Because I fear all too often we call seeking wise counsel, we use that as a way to um, cover up just gossiping with somebody who's more mature with us. I'm just, uh, be careful. Yeah, you should get wise counsel at times, but be careful that you don't step over step one and just say, oh, well, it's just a prayer request or I'm just seeking what wisdom. No, you go to that person. You go to that person. Sometimes people come to me, people in our church come to me and you, you tell me all the bad stuff that somebody has done to you. And gosh, man, I, I, I listen for many seconds. And that's, I mean, almost, all, almost on repeat, I have to stop you and I have to say, hey, have you told that person what you just told me? Well, No. No, I, I need wise counsel, pastor. No, 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 hold on. Like, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you think I'm wise. Really, I do. That makes me feel good about me, okay? But, but now hear me. You need to go to that person first. I've told multiple people multiple times in this church, hey, until you at least have that first conversation, you shouldn't be coming to me. Even as your pastor, and I love you. But Jesus would say, go to them first. That's gossip if you don't, and we don't do that. We don't do that. That's, what, that's a goofy thing that we do as Christians. The other goofy thing that we do as Christians, and I'd say this happens outside of the church as well, but uh, the other thing that we shouldn't be about is, is we shouldn't ignore it. Someone sins against us, and in our conflict-averse culture, we will do anything possible not to engage with them. Anything possible Right? We don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to stir up the waters. So we just try to ignore it. Or what's worse, we ghost the person and move. Anybody ever change a job because of conflict? You don't have to raise your hand. This is church. I know it's not safe, but like, let's be real. Anybody ever think about moving their house because the neighbors and the conflict and the stuff? I, I, anybody change friends? friend groups because of unresolved conflict. We'd rather ignore sin against us and run than confront the person who sinned. But listen to me, that's not loving. Christian, you are called to love and that's not loving. It is not loving. It is not kind. It is not merciful. It is not gracious to let someone who has sinned against you, who is in sin, to believe that everything's okay. Or you ghost them and left, leave them wondering why. That's not okay. The reason why it's not okay to do that is because that person, if they are in sin, they're not okay. Sin is a big deal. And so we handle it. I'm telling you, if we would take this first step seriously, gosh, it would change a lot. It would change a ton. But that would mean we'd have to engage in conflict. And uh, uh, no one wants to do that. You ever had that, you know, you need to have that conversation. You got that pit of your stomach feeling that you don't want to have that conversation. Even people who like conflict don't like conflict. I promise you. It's just much easier to gossip and to ignore, but Christian, Jesus is calling you to help a brother or sister by being a restorer. While we are prone to wander, it's not okay to wander. You will wander and you need to be restored. So I've seen this done well in my life. I've seen this done well in my life and I've seen it done real crappy. I've seen it both. 
You may have seen it both ways, okay? Because listen, as the pastor of this church, here's the problem. I get 45 minutes with a face mic and a live stream to offend you. Every week, every single week to sin against you. So I'm gonna blow it. I already said crappy twice now, okay? Maybe that's a sin again. I don't know. But like, uh, I can blow it all the time, all right? Uh, and, and man, you can be offended by me. People get offended by me often. And you can, at that point, you can talk to, to your friends about me, right? You can talk about me to your D group, seeking wise counsel, right? You can talk about me on your Facebook, on your Twitter, on your things. Like you can talk about me on those things, but I would just appreciate it biblically if you'd come and handle it with me privately. Like I wish you would just come to me. And sometimes you do. Now, so hear me. If I sin against you, the biblical mandate is for you to come to me first. If I sin against you, that's the biblical mandate. Now, hear me. You don't need to come to me nitpicking over everything. Sometimes what I say to you is not a sin. It's just you've taken offense to it. So make sure it's sin, okay? Sometimes you just don't like what I have to say, and that's different. Remember, this brother sinned against you. You got to discern in your mind, is this sin or am I just offended? Because if you're just offended and it's not sinful, guess what? Matthew 18 does not apply to you. It doesn't. Some of you need to hear that this morning. But, but if I do something out of line from how Jesus would want me to live, that's sin. That is sin. And so a couple years ago, this happened. Uh, one of our members heard me say something. I don't think it was in a service. I think it was in another gathering at, at our church. But I say something that, didn't, that, that they didn't think lined up with what I really valued and didn't reflect well on Christ. Okay, now hear me. Happens all the time. Progress, not perfection. Okay, happens all the time. So he reached out to me reached out to me privately and lovingly and said, Chris, I just want you to know that when, when you said that, it didn't really need to be said that way. And in fact, that could be really offensive and really hurtful and really damaging for some. And I don't think you mean to harm those people, but I just want you to know, man, I think that's out of line. And now hear me, I was totally oblivious to it. I wasn't like keeping track of all the sin. I did that and did that, got those guys. No, I was totally oblivious to it. And so I responded, I said, hey, listen, brother, thank you. Thank you. And I made a considered effort to weed that kind of speech out of my vocabulary. I even copied the elders on my response email to him so that there would be a built-in accountability layer so they would know what's going on there too. That's how you handle it. I'm sure it's not comfortable to write your pastor an email saying, hey, uh, I didn't like what you had to say. Maybe some of you were just like, well, I mean, I, yeah, we got filters for that. But like, <laughs> that's not a comfortable email to send. Hear me. It's not a comfortable email to receive. And that's how mature Christian adults handle stuff. We handle it. That's how you handle it. You start by going in private. Okay, 20 minutes in. We haven't even made it through verse 15. Uh, uh, verse 15. Verse 15, we'll get there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So there, there's the, the, the result. You see the end goal. The end goal is you have gained your brother. You've gained them. You've won them back. Hear me, the end goal is not to be right. Christians can value being right more than they can value their brothers very often. The end goal is not to be right. The end goal is not about power or status or gotcha. The end goal is to restore. You have gained your brother. So if a Christian sins against you, you first go in private. Now, I want to add one little caveat to this first verse, okay? Uh, I don't have time to go into all of it, but I do want to mention this. Um, listen, if you are a victim of abuse, if you are a victim of abuse, you are in a different category. You are in a different category. You too are called to be a restorer, 
You need to be a restorer, but you do not need to go back into a private space with your abuser where you leave yourself susceptible to being abused again. Okay, Romans 12 says, so far as it depends on you, live, it, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. And if it is not safe for you to go to that person in private, one-on-one, then you get a pass on step one. You get a pass on step one. And hear me, if you're being abused, you go to the police, you come to a pastor or to an elder, we will help you with next steps. But you do not go back one-to-one because this has been misused and abused to bring abusers and those who are being abused into the same room. And that is not wise biblical counsel. I don't have time to go into more details on that, but I'm just saying that's the caveat here. Just need to hear that. Okay, verse 16. Verse 16. But... If he does not listen. Now, did you know sometimes people don't listen? Sometimes people don't listen to me. Is that shocking? I'm shocked by that, right? They don't even listen to me. No, sometimes people don't listen. It's crazy. So sometimes you're going to go privately to the brother who sinned against you and you're doing this with the right heart motivations, a heart of restoring, of not being right, a heart of loving and not being condemning, and you tell them their fault, and sometimes they will listen and you'll gain your brother back. But other times, they won't listen. Maybe they'll scoff at you. Maybe they'll deflect. Maybe they'll start trying to justify what they did or what they said. Maybe they'll pull, like they're varsity Christians, so they'll pull some Bible on you. They'll pull Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, where Jesus says, "Uh, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? You see, while you were talking to me about my sin, it really seemed like a speck thing, but you've got this big old log shooting out of your face, so why don't you stop talking about my speck and we'll deal with this log face thing you've got going on? Like maybe that's how they respond to you. So they don't listen. It escalates at this point. Okay, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of one or uh, of two or three witnesses. This is step two. Step one, private. You go in private. The second step is patient. Second part of restoring a wandering brother requires patience. It takes time. It takes patience. Now listen to me. If he does not listen to you, if he doesn't listen to you when that one-on-one conversation, which I think will actually fix most relationships, one-to-one talking to the person rather than about the person will fix most conflicts. But if he does not listen, here's the thing. You don't cut him out at that point. You don't then at that point ghost them and walk away and say, well, I've done my part. No, you got to be patient now. You got to keep pursuing. You got to go get one or two or three others. And I think this is step two in this process. And I think there's actually two reasons for this, bringing two or three others, okay? Here's the, here's the reasons. First, you must include one or two others to confront. That's the obvious piece. You need others to help you confront this brother who has sinned. But you also include the one or two others to confirm. It's to confront. It's also to confirm, Obviously, you bring them to confront the one who sinned, but you also get them to confirm if you're actually seeing the situation clearly. Anybody misread situations before? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I was just trying to privately confront my brother about how he sinned against me, and he called me a log face. He called me loghead, so I wanted to check with a couple of others to see if I'm missing something here. Tell me if I'm missing something. If I've got a big old thing coming out of my face, I need to know about this. It's not just to confront the others. It's actually to confirm what what you're experiencing is true or if you're missing something. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I engage as a restorer with somebody, I find myself convicted for something. 
as if there's two sides to every story. But in my private narrative, in my own mind, when I'm arguing and winning in my brain, I'm always right. How many of you lose arguments in your brain? No, you don't. You win them. And then you sit down over coffee and you wonder, ah, I didn't see that curveball. And they say something and you're like, oh, oh. In every conflict, there's always a part that's my fault. Shocking, I know. Shocking. There's always a percentage of the conflict and sin between us that's mine to own. Even if it's a very small percentage. Even if it's all I've been doing is thinking hateful thoughts about you, that's a percentage. That's a percentage of the conflict. And frankly, often I need help to see what that percentage is. I don't see logs in my head very well. That's why they're called blind spots. Because if I could see them, I wouldn't be blind to them. So we don't only grab two others to firm up our case, but also to give us help and clarity to confirm where there might be a hunk of wood in our vision. And we need to deal with that. And then I always say, when you realize that you've got something, you've got a percentage or whatever, I always say, you need to own 100% of whatever is your percent to own. On 100%, okay, so imagine you're in a conflict, 3% of it is your fault. 3%. 97%, that's an A plus in some circles. They are the A plus sinner. 3%, that's nothing. No, 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 you own 100% of your 3%. You own everything that you can own in that conflict. Now, hear me. All this I'm talking about requires a ton of patience. Requires multiple meetings. It requires a lot of discernment and prayer and conversation. This isn't like, hey, the next day, bring two or three along with you and go take on the the, the brother that sinned against you. Requires patience. But then there is eventually a confrontation. Once they have confirmed, your two or three have confirmed that that person indeed sinned against you and did not respond well in your first private conversation, then there is a confrontation, a second confrontation, where you've got to get one or two others to come with you and talk to that person who sinned against you. And here's what I'll say. This means you are involving wise, objective third parties. Not idiots, not people in your camp. Wise, objective, third parties. You don't go uh, bring one or two others who just agree with you and then they hold that person down while you verbally assault them. You ever been there? Two, I mean, I've been there. I have been there where they're like, hey, he thinks you're a jerk and she hates you too. Oh, great. You know what I'd like to do? Repent right here. On my knees before you. Like, that's what I'd like to do right now. Thank you for your care. That's, no, that's not what we do. Remember, the heart of this is restoration. Not beating a sinner up. You restore. So, so those one or two others should be involved in this individual's life as well. They should have some sort of relational stake with these people. They should be um, probably from the same church. It doesn't always have to be that way, but I would say it's probably wise to be from the same church. They should also be loving and desirous of repentance and redemption. Should have the right lenses on. Uh, My advice is to ask about your two or three others. uh, Are these the third party mediators that the offender would choose? Would they be okay with these two or three others or are they just my backup? You know that, like if you're a cop calling in backup, are they just my backup with guns? Because that's not helpful. But again, Jesus is upping the ante here to include more members of of your Christian community. And Matthew is intentionally using language. He's drawing on language of two or three witnesses, which we find in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19 specifically. Essentially what he's doing is he's making sure that these one and two, these others, carefully weigh the evidence of the individual's sin. It's not just about feelings, It's about evidence. It's about the the truth. There's more procedure that Jesus is bringing into this process. So that's step two. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay. 
the restorer starts by a conversation in private. If that doesn't go well, then, then you get two or three more and you patiently figure out how to handle step two. But if there's still no response, you go public. You go public. How public do you go, you ask? Great question. So glad you asked that. Um, well, this is not some whistleblowing maneuver, which is super popular right now. This isn't, I'm going to go public on Facebook. I'm going to go public on my social media. I'm going to go public with everybody that I'm in contact with, with a mass email. I'm going to write a manifesto against this person and send it. That's not the public that Jesus is talking about. He says, tell it to the church. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to tell it to the church? Here, here's what I don't think it means. I don't think it means the church service. I don't think it's like, hey, open mic. Who has offended you? Next, right? Chris, come on up here. Let's, let's do this. No, 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 no. Some churches have, I think, mistakenly interpreted it like that and have done terrible damage. That's not what this is talking about, like a big old airing of grievances. Can you imagine if we did that every week? I do like our responses. I'm like, hey, after we hear God's word preached, we, you know, we take communion and we give and we pray and we sing. And Ted, come on. I saw what you posted on Facebook this week. Come on over here. Let's talk about it right here in front of the church. Or I'm going to bring it to the, can you imagine? I mean, it'd be fun. <laughs> Once, right, one time, one time. But I think what Jesus means by tell it to the church is that you tell it to the spiritual authorities in your shared community. I think at that point, you tell it to the church, to pastors, leaders, elders, deacons, whatever, whatever. You remember, you're in relationship with this brother. Whatever community heads that you have both mutually submitted under, I think you tell it to them so that they can help with the restoration process so that they can help. This is what I think it means when you go, you go public. It's not like you broadcast it. It's you involve people in the next layer outside of private and outside of two or three that need to know and can help it be restorers. Again, it's all about restoration. You involve the larger church body. Now, sometimes at this point, you'll deal with, do we then tell the members? Do we not tell the members? I mean, this becomes a much bigger conversation that we don't have time to get into. But I'm just saying, you progressively, privately, and patiently involve more and more people as the sin progresses further and further and further. That's what Jesus is showing us. Now, look at verse 17 again. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if it gets past the last step, if it moves past the last step, what you have is a member who goes, hey, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a believer in Christ and I'm a member of Fathom, but I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God commands me. I reject your private confrontation. I reject third parties. I reject even the elders and leadership of our church. If, 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 if that's the posture of that person, that, if that's what you have on your hands at that point, to that, Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that sounds wild. Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And some have taken that phrase and said, that's right. Kick them out. Get them out of the church. Kick them out of here. But that is the exact opposite sentiment of what Jesus is saying here. To the unrepentant wanderer, we say, the church leaders say, based on your response to our private, patient, and then public confrontation, pursuit of your restoration, based on your response, we don't believe that you're a Christian. We can't in good faith affirm your profession 
of faith, and therefore we cannot treat you as such. Now, do we know for sure they're not Christians? No way. No way. Only God knows. But we can look at fruit, and if all we see is fruit of unrepentance, Based on that, based on what we see, we can't treat you like a member of the church when everything you're doing is evidencing the opposite of that. So it sounds harsh. Sounds harsh. But you see, sometimes these wanderers, the lost sheep, are not actually Christians. I said they were, right? Little ones are Christians and the one sheep that goes astray, God will go get. And so I said that it's a Christian who's gone astray. But, but, but listen, sometimes the wandering sheep aren't actually Christians, but they think they are. They think they are. But listen, even if you were raised in the church and you've never missed a Sunday and man, you were like baptized by Moses or something, like even if that's the case, listen, that doesn't make you a Christian. Okay, having parents who are Christians, does not make you a Christian. Gives you a better shot, but it does not make you a Christian. Getting baptized does not make you a Christian. Being a good person does not make you a Christian. Adhering to some sort of conservative moral code does not make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian is surrendering your whole life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. And this wandering person is showing that they haven't surrendered. That's what they're showing. They're evidencing. And the church is called to treat them accordingly. To treat them that way. So the last step of the restore is that we're not able to affirm that the wanderer is actually a Christian. We're not able to affirm that any longer. But we don't kick them out. We don't kick them out of the church. We don't ostracize them. We don't give them the boot and say, good luck to you out there, pagan, sinner, Gentile, tax collector. Have fun. We treat them like Gentiles and tax collectors. Question, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He loved them. He loved them. He rolled out the red carpet for them. In fact, the very one who wrote this gospel, Matthew, was actually... A tax collector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's ironic. No, it's not. When the power of the gospel and the surrender of the individual to the gospel and to Christ, it changes everything. He's no longer a tax collector. He's a son. You're no longer a Gentile. You're a daughter. But if your life doesn't evidence that any of that has happened, the church cannot lovingly affirm that we think you are. So we preach and we plead with the, with, with the lost sheep to believe on Christ. We preach to them. We plead with them. We love them in hopes that they would be restored. Repent, turn from sin, surrender all to Christ. Now, verse 18, we're almost done, believe it or not. You don't have to believe it. Verse 18, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a wild verse that's been uh, misinterpreted specifically by different denominations, even by uh, outside groups like uh, Latter-day Saints, Mormons. They believe that differently than evangelical Christians, Orthodox Christians believe. But what this verse means in this context uh, is that there is a very real eternal impact on what we are doing when we play the role of the restorer. There's very real impact that happens when you pursue a brother who is wandering. Something eternal is going on because back in verse 16, it says you have gained your brother. It really means that. It really means you've won them back. They were lost and you were a part of restoring them. And for wanderers who, like I just talked about, are not actually Christians, whether they're confused or whether they're deceived or whether they're pretending, regardless of the fact, for those, there's a definite eternal impact on how you restore them. 
There's eternal ramifications. And James says just as much in his epistle. James chapter 5, 19 and 20 says this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Are you doing the saving? No. But God has invited us into the process of bringing them back and even being a part of saving their soul. This isn't just conflict resolution. It has eternal consequences. And Matthew will agree in our last two verses, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So these two verses are some of the most ripped out of context and abused verses in Matthew's gospel. Okay, just so you know, those two verses have just gotten totally co-opted for so many things that are not uh, in the context. First, verse 19, where two or three gather, or uh, two, two or three agree in my name on something. That is not about two or three Christians agreeing that we should all be rich for cash and prizes and health and wealth and cotton candy and Cadillacs. That's not what we're agreeing upon. And if we just two or three agree upon it, then we've got God in a bind and he's got to give it to us. That's, that's, that's dumb. That's just dumb. If you, like, come on. Like, that's not even sensical. That's nonsense. That's, this, is, this is God doing the miraculous work of restoring someone who had wandered. Second, verse 20, ripped out of context all the time. Ripped out of context by worship leaders. Sorry. All right, that's what happens. I was one. Okay, I did it. Just so you know, I ripped it out of context and I said things like, they were dumb, just dumb things. Where two or three are gathered, church. All right, let's sing. The spirit is here, let's sing. This is why we have a really smart and wonderful worship minister, Amanda, who like literally doesn't say dumb things like that. We pay her to read the Bible in context and use those things contextually. These, these verses don't mean that like two or three show up and all of a sudden that's the spirit. That's where the spirit shows up. The threshold is two to three. If you're by yourself, good luck. Two or three, right? Like that's not, that's not what this text is about. It's in the context of restoring a wandering sinner. This is what these two verses are saying. When you follow the biblical prescription of how to handle a wandering believer... When you do Matthew 18 correctly, privately, patiently, publicly, charitably, carefully, slowly, lovingly, when you do that, God shows up. God steps in. God's there. Gosh, no matter how impossible the situation may seem, no, no matter how broken the relationship may be, no matter how egregious the sin committed against you may have been, no matter how hard the heart of that person is, God can and does show up in those instances. Now, this is no promise of it working out the way that you want it to work out. The promise is that God's presence is with you. That's got to be enough. It's got to be enough. Church, we are called to be the restorer. The restorer. And I've just preached a very long sermon with less jokes than normal. Um, and I, all I did was tell you how to do that externally. I gave you three steps. Step one, step two, step three. Right? Private patient, public. I gave you those three steps. And those are all external things that you do. Christian, those are the things that Jesus commands you to do when a brother or a sister sins against you. Those things, in that order, that's the command. And I doubt you'll do them. I mean, I love you, but I don't want to do them. I doubt that you'll do them because I've been a pastor for 20 years now. And I've just watched very few actually practice that. Like I said, it's uncomfortable to do the private thing. 
it's much easier to tap out. It's much easier to run away. Listen, there's a billion churches in this town. You can leave right now. And you can go from church to church to church, leaving a wake of broken relationships behind you. And maybe you have. I'm not trying to convict you. I'm just saying like, gosh, how's that working? See, the reason why I doubt that you'll actually do this uh, is because most often we stop right where I just stopped with the externals. And we say, hey, you just got to do this and then do that and then do this and it's going to be better. And that's just not the case because the text actually goes on and I don't have time to get into it this week. But when somebody sins against us, the problem isn't just three easy steps. The problem is it hurts. When someone sins against you, it's costly. When, When a brother does something out of step with brotherhood, well, that does damage that sometimes can feel irreparable. And mere external steps will never motivate us to actually pursue restoration. And next week, we're going to see the third movement of this progression where we move from the wanderer to the restorer, and then we become the forgiver. And the forgiveness piece is the internal flame that drives the external steps. We ought to come back for that. I love you, church. Let's pray. We bless you, Father. We bless you because I'm sure as I'm talking, there are people who are floating into our minds. Relationships. Friendships. Family members significant others and gosh they've sinned against us maybe it was this week maybe it was this month maybe it was this year maybe it's been 10, 20, 30 years and that unresolved conflict has just been a festering wound gosh maybe father the one who has been the sinner is us. The one who needs to be restored is us. And so God, as we look at steps, I pray that the heart behind the steps for restoration of a wandering sheep would be very paramount in our minds and our hearts. Whether we are needing to be restored or whether we need to play the role of the restorer, Lord, would you give us the heart that Christ has? towards the Gentile, towards uh, the, the tax collector, towards the sinner, towards those who, those who are so far away from him. And if there are those, Lord, who find themselves in the place where they have wandered and they are actually even questioning by the power of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, questioning today whether they are actually Christians, whether they are actually sheep, I pray, Father, that they would surrender to you right now. They would surrender the whole of their life to the Lordship of Christ and begin a process of being restored. So God, we want to follow this because this seems to be the best way towards good, healthy, God-fearing community. Help us to do this in our Christian community. Help us to do this in our relationships. Give us courage and help us to learn next week the heart behind these motivations. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.